Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. could not stop what he was doing. It was either sex or suicide. It's often said that we will likely never understand how a person becomes a serial killer. However, I believe we can. In fact, we must if we are ever going to find a way to stop the sexual abuse of children. But it's not only the victims we want to save. We also want to stop our children from transforming themselves into killers. Arthur Gary Bishop and Wesley Allen Dodd had many things in common. They were both psychopathic pedophiles and prolific child molesters who eventually turned to killing their victims. Both were executed for their crimes at their own request. Most importantly, both desperately wanted to know one thing before they died. How did I become a serial killer? This book is an attempt to answer that question. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Mind of a Devil, the case of Arthur Gary Bishop and Wesley Allen Dodd, with my special guest, Dr. Al Carlisle, Ph.D. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Dr. Al Carlisle. Hi, Dan. Yes, good evening, Hello. Doctor. Welcome to the program. Okay, yes, thank you. I'm glad I got you. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, Let's get right into this. We've got a lot to cover, and this is a fantastic book. Uh, The audience is going to love this. I extremely enjoyed your book about Bundy, and this is in the same vein. Incredible, incredible access that you had. You were employed at the Utah State Prison engaging in research on violent inmates, and the projects initially began when you completed a psychological assessment on Ted Bundy for the courts. Now, you say in your book you, you didn't want to speak with convicted child killer Arthur Gary Bishop while you were at this maximum facility of the Utah State Prison, Death Row. Tell us how you came to change your mind and why. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, my whole career was in the prison. We did uh, various things therapy and research and a lot of evaluations and I worked primarily with uh, violent people and to talk to a someone who's quite violent say a violent rapist is one thing but to talk to, to someone who's killed children is totally another and when our bishop was sentenced to be executed he uh, he came out and was on death row, and I went down and met with him and said, 
Art, I'm from the psychology department, and if there's anything you want, let me know. And I anticipated they just say, I don't need anything, thank you. And then I would have walked away and say, well, I did what I'm supposed to do, and that's it. But he he said two things. He says, first of all, he wanted to die for killing those kids. And he actually had to fire his current lawyers, attorneys, because they said they couldn't represent him to die early. And he had to hire a new set of attorneys who would. And then, but he, he got that approved by the court. Um, and the other thing he wanted, he said, I want to understand why I killed those kids. How did I get to that place in the first place? And so I thought, boy, that's that's a good piece of, of research for all the stuff I'm doing on violence. And wow. so that's we I met with him about uh, two to three times a month until his execution and I was with him on the night he was executed. Yes. Now, in this research, you say that he sent you volumes of biographical data about him, biographical data yeah, about, about his childhood. Now, let's go back the to, as you do. Yeah. Yes. As you do, you go back to his childhood. Let's let's go to his childhood when you say he was born in 1952 in Hinckley, Utah, because you really get it from him, really what went on, because he... As we've just mentioned, he really wants to know how he became this person. So tell us about his early Mm -hmm. upbringing, what he had told you. Well, he came from an intact family. Both parents were fairly religious. Hinckley is a small town, very small town. And um, his grandmother, grandparents, grandmother and father lived close by. And in a small town like that, you know everybody, you have friends, you have family, and he remembers, he'd come home from being out doing something as a child, and his mother would have uh, hot rolls that had been set out on the window seal to cool off, and he could smell those, and he came in and had a hot roll and honey and butter and you know all of that, so he was really fairly happy. As a child, there was no uh, no sexual abuse, no physical abuse. No, so it started out fairly normal way. You talk and about that he, he went, had also. Sorry, go ahead. Wait, um, and he was religious. He went to church and was quite active. And as he got into his teens, he continued to get good grades. He uh, uh, he started to develop an interest. Now, it wasn't so much a sexual interest. It was more of a curiosity about boys. And he found himself something akin to being a little turned off when turned on when he would see boys. But he didn't have any strong desire at this point. You know, the desire grew. 
and it got very powerful over time. But he got high you grades talk about in school. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, he got good grades in school. He was an Eagle Scout, um, and he was respected by by people. Now, we find he did have somewhat of a, a temper, but the cause of that is basically unknown. It's just like a lot of kids who get angry and So, but basically, he was a fairly normal kid. You talk about the religion, though, that he did get involved with was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we'll talk about later about a mission he goes to that's very, very important in his development, we'll say. Now, you say that he also, what I mentioned religion, is that because he had said to you that there was a strong belief that you shouldn't have sex with a woman, a girl, before marriage, and this was a was a sin. So he did live in, again, comparative to maybe now, a, a fairly religious home with those kinds of ideas yes. open to him. Yeah. But there was an interesting twist to all of that. He would hear... Uh, religious people preach that it's moral to have sex before you get married and all of that. But nothing was said about it being wrong to have sex with a boy. Now, when he said that, my thought was, come on, Art, you got to be kidding. You're not that dumb. But right. he insisted on that. But for some reason, he came out with that interpretation I, it's it's wrong to have sex with a girl, but no one has said anything about a boy, and therefore maybe it's not that wrong. And uh, he held to that all the way through, and it's a weird thought. Mm-hmm. But uh, quite odd. He's a very intelligent young man too. We talk about. He's very successful in school and business and in that department. But you also talk about, I found it interesting too, when you talk about the bad temper, but you say, well, he was he grew up kind of normal. But when he did have, as you mentioned, as you delved into this and got the entire report from him, that he mentions a couple incidents with, you put them in about a baby pigeons and his anger. Yeah. And he talk about that, but then we talk about later, that anger increasing. So maybe you could talk about this anger that he exhibits in the story he tells about the pigeons. Uh, he didn't have a general desire to hurt animals, but he saw the other kids with their BB guns shooting birds and other things. And so he, at first he thought, okay, that's, that's wrong. I don't want to do that. And but then he got angry at one time about something, and he uh, killed some pigeons, and he felt bad about it. Now, later on, later on, after his whole sexual habit 
had built and was extremely strong. He, and he was living on his own in Salt Lake. He would get some puppies and he loved little puppies, but he'd get mad at them. If they'd piddle on the floor, he would hit them and some he choked him to death and and then he would cry afterwards and uh, some he just beat to death and then he cried. Then he missed dogs so he'd go out and get another one. But this was a time when he had totally violated his belief about who he should be what he wanted to be in the future and so yeah he was very cruel later on you talk about this strong moral code that he believed to have and then so he you talk about him believing that he should pray to God for help because he kept talking about things being out of control and this is earlier on he even felt that things were out of his control mm-hmm yeah, he was religious, and he would go to church all the time, and, you know, he became an Eagle Scout. And, and a lot of it was because his mother was quite religious, and she was active in her church, and he always wanted to please his mother. It was very important to him. And he started developing this desire or to see what kids would look like when they were naked and that. And then he'd uh, uh, cuss himself and say, he doesn't want to do that. He shouldn't do that. It, that's not who he is and all of that. But So prayed, but nothing really changed. And, of course, we can't blame God for that. No. Uh, I don't believe. But uh, it, nothing changed and... But the thing he did not do, and you can sort of understand this, he didn't ever tell anyone, hey, I've got a problem. I've got a problem and I need help. And it's, to me, a a, a very strong principle is a person is controlled by the secret things that bother them. Certainly. You talk about this challenge that he puts himself in. He is with the Latter-day Saints, and he, they go on missions, and he's picked to go on a mission. He goes to the Philippines. He's 21 years old. This is 1971. Uh-huh. And he already has these urges, and he wants. He thinks his sex life is out of control, and his urges are out of control. Tell us about this trip and what is accomplished or not accomplished when he goes to the Philippines. What happens there? Okay. In the LDS religion, person, if he wants to, is asked to go for two years at their own expense, and they're sent somewhere to preach about the religion. And so the bishop approaches him and says, Art, how would you like to go on a mission? And he's thinking, yes, I want to because it will please my mom. And yes, I want to because maybe then I can get control over these urges that's starting to get out of hand and find myself sexually attracted to boys and not girls. 
And so he was hoping that by going on a mission, that God then would take away those urges. And so he wouldn't have them anymore. So do you want me to say more about the mission now? Sure. What what happens? I mean, yeah, okay. absolutely. So he, so he goes to the Philippines, and a missionary is with a companion, and they go out and visit people together. And he's out there, and he sees these naked boys, and he's thinking, I'm not going to look at them. I'm going to control this. It's not going to get out of hand. So he looks away, and he doesn't look at them. And he's very proud of the fact that he is controlling it. Well, he's there about a year, and he's feeling good, except he is beginning to feel lonely, and he's beginning to feel bored. You know, the same thing over and over again, but just going out and meet these people and converting them. And so um, on this one day, there's this little boy who is in the room, and he's naked, and he's sitting on a pot, going to the bathroom in the pot in that room with him, the front room. And he finds himself getting turned on, really turned on, that it bothers him. And then he goes, and he's taking a shower that night, and he finds himself climaxing in the shower. And it's not that he wanted to, because he's trying not to, but he climaxes in the shower and then you find that this is one of the major turns in his whole life because at that point he's feeling very guilty and he's thinking, although this is not the LDS belief, he's thinking that I repented and God forgave me and I was doing well and I was feeding his spirit and everything was going fine and now I do this and therefore I have sinned and God will be disappointed in me and I won't have his spirit anymore and therefore all the repentance I've done over the last year has been undone and he gets very depressed about it and and I don't know if it's the next day or which is very soon He tells his companion, you go visit the people today. I'm not feeling well. I'm going to stay home. So the companion goes out and visits some families. And he takes a bottle of of pills, a bottle of aspirin, and he's laying there, laying there thinking, so this is what it's like to die. And he's feeling peace. Because he's thinking, all of my struggles will be over. Pukes them all up. And he's just very sick. And then he tells his mission president that he he's depressed. He wants to go home. And mission president calls him in and talks to him. And the thing he doesn't do, he doesn't tell the mission president anything about this sexual stuff. All he says is, I'm depressed and I'm missing home and I, I, I'd like to go home. Well, the mission president talks to him and gives him a blessing and when Art walks out of that he feels 
energized. He's enthusiastic. He feels, okay, I can do this. I can make it. It's going to be fine. And he is then made a supervisor over some other missionaries. But Art is not one who can really tell people what to do. You know, he's passive. Um, And then that doesn't work out so well, so he goes to another place. But he makes it to his second year, and he comes home. And when he comes home, now a return missionary is highly respected. The ward members and other people, the family and cousins, and everyone looks up to this person and says, wow, here's a return missionary. Great. He's been out there serving God for two years at his own expense, and which the parents are generally the ones who pay for this. And, uh, and so he comes back, and he's still feeling very disappointed, and he feels like he doesn't want to be active, so he gets a job, and the job is one where he works every other Sunday. He thinks, okay, that's what I want to do out the brilliant plant, because that way I won't have to go to church. And one day he's in church, and uh, one of the leaders come up to him and says, Art, in Sunday school, this teacher didn't show up. Oh, the teacher can't come and teach this Sunday school class. The kids are about 14, 15 years old. Could you take the class? And they're thinking, well, you know, a return missionary can just step up, and they've got lots to talk about, and they can step into that place and do a great job. Well, he bombs it. And he apologizes to the kids, and he's thinking, you know, I I can't do this anymore. And so he's feeling extremely ashamed. And so he gets him a motorcycle with the money he's making and drives around on it. And one day he picks up this kid and is giving him a ride, and he sexually fondles the kid. And then he's really ashamed of himself. And he tells the kid, please don't tell anyone. But the kid uh, is related to a lady who knows his arch grandmother very well. And so in essence, he say, I've got to get out of here. I can't live this way. I'm not worthy of it. So he moves up to Salt Lake. And uh, goes to school, gets his degree in accounting, and uh, does quite well in school. But he starts getting uh, sexually involved. He, he he's living with an aunt for a while, and he's fondling some of the the her boys, and and uh, and then he wants to move out because he thinks, okay, they're going to tell. And then we get to uh, that the whole next section of his life where he's sexually interested in kids and he develops this technique. It's taking pictures of the genitals of boys. And he has no interest in girls. No, he, he would like to get married and have kids, but he doesn't want to date. He has no interest in girls. 
And what he's doing is, is technique, and he keeps using this over and over again for years. The technique is to tell a kid that someone is uh, it is has something on him, and art has to take pictures of the genitals because the person who is doing this uh, has a sexual desire for kids. So he says, "Look, let me just take a picture of your genitals." And uh, I'll send it to this guy, and I'll give you 50 bucks for it. I won't take your, a picture of your face, just your genitals. And, and so the kids start saying, okay, you know, no face. No one can recognize me. Just that. Takes a picture, give the kids 50 bucks, and he gets some kids doing that. But what's happening, the problem, sexual problem, just gets worse and worse and worse. Then he he literally falls in love with a couple of young boys. He becomes very jealous. And this is a big part of him and also Wesley Dodd, who molested, killed three boys, molested a lot of kids. But Art put $6,000 down on a home. And he gets a nice bed and he has this one boy who is willing to come over and and just sleep with him and all of this. And he's, he's starting to get involved, sexually involved with kids beyond just the picture taking. A lot of touching, a lot of just mutual masturbation and things like that. And but he gets fearful of these kids are going to grow up and leave him. He is a very lonely kid at this time. He cut off his family, and so they don't know just where he's at. Uh, he goes and talks to the bishop of his ward in Salt Lake, and he tells the bishop he wants to be excommunicated from the church, and the bishop says, Why? And he says, because I've been immoral with a girl. I am being immoral with a girl. And I want to get excommunicated. And I ask him, Art, why? You had such a strong belief in God before. Why now are you just cutting everything off? Your family, your religion, your deity, all of this. And he said, I figured if I'm a member of the church, God expects a lot more of me. But if I'm not a member of the church, God will expect less of me. And therefore, by the devil. And maybe I can get control of this. So in essence, he's cut off all of his support system. And all he has, he's an accountant he gets good jobs. He's very good. He can talk almost anyone into hiring him. And he's good at what he does, bookkeeping. And he embezzles money because he wants to buy things for the kids. And he's not making enough. He wants to buy this kid a bike. He wants to buy this kid some games and all of that stuff. So now he's embezzling. And then he gets caught, and uh, 
people find out about the kids and the kids leave him and he's but he's just very lonely, very empty, and now he's been picked up on an embezzlement charge. And he said he embezzled uh what thirty seven, forty thousand dollars something. Yeah. Uh he embezzled a lot of money. Yeah. And when he went to a halfway house, went to court in a halfway house, the judge, looking at all of that, says, okay, here's a return missionary. He's been very active in the church, and he's never had been arrested. He's uh, basically a good kid, and therefore we'll put him on probation. Yeah. And uh, and he goes to that halfway house community center and he finds that the guys really look down on anyone who's been a sex offender and he begins to think if I get picked up on a sex charge I'll go to prison and they'll rape me, they'll beat me up they may kill me because I'm coming in on a sex charge on a child and so that brings us up to that point of the first homicide you talk about October 17, 1979, Alonzo Daniels, and yeah. uh, he's working as a bookkeeper at a steel company. And so he uh-huh. is short on money, like you say, for buying gifts. He's been already convicted of embezzlement. He's in therapy for that embezzlement, and he's also uh-huh. supposed to tell us, and he's also supposed to tell his probation officer about any children. He's not allowed around children. So tell us, right. set up the situation where he comes into contact with Alonzo Daniels, October 1979. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's been a therapist. And he had one therapist he didn't care for very much, but he got another therapist, and he really liked him. And this is a highly respected therapist in Salt Lake. And so he liked going to him, but... Again, he was talking about the embezzlement. He wasn't saying anything about uh, desires for kids. And he's working. And one day he comes home for lunch. And he's in one of these apartment complexes where you have two apartments on the bottom, two on the top above them. And you have a set of stairs that go up and uh, go off into the upper apartment. So he's downstairs in his apartment, and uh, little Alonzo is out there com- and playing. And Art finds himself getting turned on by the kid. And uh, so he asks the kid to come in. He says, "Hey, would you like to? Um, would you like to come in and?" have a sandwich and that type of thing and so Alonzo came in and this you know he was supposed to go back to work about one o'clock and but he started fondling the boy as the boy was sitting at the table and the boy started crying and Bart got scared and because he just knew the kid was going to go tell his mom. And so he killed the kid. And in the book, I've tried to minimize just the way he did these things. 
you know, because um, sure. books is very hard to read. Uh, it's it's, I think, exceptionally good insofar as telling the details of how the person became this way as a killer. But it's hard to read because it's killing children. <clears throat> so, but he kills him, and then he hears the mom going out calling for the boy, yeah. and going up and down, you know, and uh, and then that night he buries the, takes the kid out, buries him, and feeding very guilty. He feels the house is haunted. He has nightmares, and but he said something that was very interesting. He said that when he killed the boy, he said, something left me. And he pointed to his chest when he said that. And is like, and he equated to his conscience. And he said, it just left me. And after that, I didn't have any difficulty killing kids. No, and uh, the flip side of that is he really did. And something interesting happened with Alonzo and then with Kim, the next one. It was though when he killed them, he went into sort of a, a dazed state. You know, almost like it wasn't him. It was like someone else, although he knew it was him. But then with the last ones, he felt the reality and he couldn't escape the feeling of reality and that really scared him. You talk about, too, that when you talk, he is by now having an alias. Lynn Jones, he's got a yeah. false security yeah. card and driver's license. There's a warrant out for yeah. him. So yeah. now he's so he's disassociating literally in that way as well. And then when he kills this Kim Peterson, it's interesting that Jess was a Jess gave uh, gave him a ride. Art gave Jess a ride home. He called to say he needed a ride. So he's he's cool and calm and able to be able to do these murders and adapt, and then act normal with and then still ha- have this relationship with these kids. At the same yeah. time that he's gone much, much further. Yeah. And that's, um, I think, uh, Danny Davis you're talking about there. Uh, Kim was the one who had some roller skates. And uh, Art says, okay, what, let's go out and go hunting out here. And uh, so Kim went with him. And, and then Kim says, you know, I can't, and because Art wanted to sexually perform on him, and Kim says, "You know, I can report you for this, and so you need to start giving me money." And then that's when Art shot him and buried the body, and said to, because Alonzo was right there as well, and he said to Alonzo, "Okay, now here you have a friend." And then he went back and. Yeah, Danny Davis, that was an interesting one because little Danny was in a store with his grandfather, I think it's yeah. Smith, in Salt Lake. And, um, and there's a lot of interesting things about this story, but Danny happened to be alone and Art walked up to him and said, do you want to play some toys? And 
if you do come with me and walked out and uh, the boy happened to follow him, then he got out in the parking lot and grabbed the kid. Uh, myself and another psychologist at the prison, Dr. Alan Rowe, we were asked by the police to do hypnosis with some of the people who thought they might have seen the perpetrator walk out of the store. And it's interesting, all the different stories we got, you know. Okay, they came out and he jumped in this car and drove off. He grabbed this kid and put him in the car and drove off, you know. And none of that happened. But uh, there are a lot of people who wanted to help and gave lots of different stories. And whereas when Art got the boy, he went around the back and over and across the street and to his place and, uh, yeah, and, you know, you really feel sorry, sorry for the families of these kids. And he changed, Art changed his name, and he changed his identification, you know. And I asked him, I said, well, how'd you get another driver's license, another Social Security card? And he explained how he did it. And there were people that he... Um, he could do it with pretty easily. And, and he decided to stay in Salt Lake because he now had another name. And uh, a warrant was out for his arrest, and he figured as long as he didn't do anything to get arrested, that uh, they wouldn't know. Yeah, it's you, you talk about this eerie part of it, again, very movie-esque. He goes back to the store to get some snacks for the kid. Yeah. And for, pardon me, for his friends later after he kills uh, Danny and then sees one of the employees talking to a police officer and he asks, well, what's the, what's what's going on? And they says, well, somebody has misplaced their grandson. So, you know, pure, pure example of evil, certainly. Yeah, and he feels real bad about that. He feels guilty. So he has to leave. And Art felt guilty about these things over and over and over again. And there's a quote I have on him in the beginning of the yeah. book yeah. where he, he says that when you get this, he says, even after witnessing the grief and pain I've caused, Still, my innermost thoughts and desires are for evil. The God of pedophilia has captured my heart, and no other desire seems so real, strong, insistent, or pleasurable as this. I know the things I've done are sick and revolting to anyone who's normal, yet I, yet inside I fear that I would continue such atrocities if given the opportunity. The compulsion to do so is too strong for me to permanently overcome. Yeah, he said that worshiping pornography was just like worshiping a god, and he knew that he could never stop. He also has one of the most disturbing quotes is that he, to explain why he could continue so seemingly easily even though he was remorseful when you spoke to him and all these guards re remarked is that he said you can only go to hell once yeah yeah 
Yeah, it's not going to be any worse killing a second person because of that. And he he developed the capability. And this is where the whole psychopathic process comes in. He developed the capability that when he started feeding guilt, he would put it out of his mind. And if he felt guilt about having killed a kid, he'd start thinking about the next adventure, the next one. And Wesley Dodd, who killed the three kids up in the Northwest, he did the same thing. And that's what they create themselves as a psychopath rather than being born with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now you talk about, too, that this escalation and ex- acceleration, you talk about that he wanted to next time make the murder more memorable. And I think this is, I've read this quite a bit, that it's never satisfying enough. And so even though you say he's, totally regretting, but they are planning and fantasizing about things better than the last time, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, And uh, Wesley Dodd is a good one as an example on this. When Wes Dodd started molesting kids, he was a teenager, around 15 years old, and he was asked to babysit. And he went to babysit, and there was, uh, I think, two or three kids, and one of them was a boy, and he did some sexual things with the boy. And then when he came home, he thought, the next time I've got to make a list of everything I want to do because there are some things I forgot. And it's, it's, it's like he's saying, if I'm going to do something as dramatic, powerful, evil, as this, if I'm going to go that far, then I might as well do everything I can and get everything I can out of it, or else I'm going to regret I didn't. Absolutely. Now, when, let's talk just briefly about there's another two murders, there's five murders in total. Yeah. How does he finally get arrested, and what happens that he, that police know the whereabouts and the details so quickly? Tell us about those circumstances when he is finally arrested. Okay. So he's, he kills a child, and then he waits for a while. And then he kills another child and waits for a while. And then the last two months, last two months, everything is falling apart. He's still working. He's doing fine in his work. But uh, he's he's noticing on 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 the one before um, he's noticing that he's in reality. That is he gets this one kid and he talks him into coming downstairs and he's thinking of setting up a contraption down there where the kid would lay down and he could chain him down and then sexually molest him and kill him. And he's thinking of having a cage or something down there to do that. So he gets this kid down there 
And he pulls out a gun, points it at the boy, and says, I want you to lay down and put these handcuffs put around the pole and put them on. And the kid talks him out of it. And then Art feels bad. He cries. He hugs the kid. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let the kid go. Well, the kid knows the family. And he doesn't kill that boy. And then he and the kid he's befriended from a single mother. He spent some time living with them a few months. Um, They're going to go to California, to Disneyland. And so they planned the whole thing. He gets this kid to come over, Graham Cunningham. He calls him and gets him to come over. He says, let's come over and let's plan just some last details about stuff. We're going Saturday morning. And, and the kid comes over and he molests the kid and then he kills him. And he's feeling bad about this, but come Saturday morning, you know, well, the mother calls, calls around because the boy, Graham, doesn't come home. I think it's a Thursday night. Doesn't come home. And she calls around and says, Art, have you seen him? Well, he was here. I gave him a form to fill out regarding medical things on the trip, and so he left. So she can't find him, and the next day she can't find him. She calls the police, and they can't do anything that night because he's just a missing boy. But the next day they start looking, and Saturday morning it comes in. So Jess and Art and Graham, are the three of them are supposed to go to California, to Disneyland, Art's paying for all of this. And... But Graham, of course, is not there because he's deceased. And uh, so the mother, then, uh, you know, is calling the police. And and Graham, no, uh, Jess says the mother, we'll stay, we'll stay, you know, because Jess really didn't want to go that much. And that's why you wanted Graham to go, because Jess and Graham are good friends. And so Jess says, hey, I'll stay. And I'll help you look for him. And the mother says, no, it's okay. You just, you and Art, you go ahead and go. And so they get in our card and they go. And periodically, Jess gets on the phone and calls back and says, have you found him yet? No, he may have run away because he had threatened to run away once before. And all the time, Art is there. They want to go to this restaurant Art has been to before. And he loves the food, and he's thinking, okay, this is the last time I'll be here. And various things, he keeps thinking, this is the last time I'll be doing this. It seems like, subconsciously at least, he knows it's over. And so he comes back, and they stop in in Beaver, Utah, for the night, because I think Art has a massive headache, and they come back the next day, and that. The mother calls and said, hey, when you get back, the police want to talk to you. And you get back, and the mother asks Art about Graham, and it turns out that 
art indicates or it shows that he's the last person to have seen him. And then the police come and uh, they start interrogating him. And, and they're only looking for the connection to Graham at this point. But after a bit, uh, after some hours of this, and then Art says to him, look, I'll tell you if you'll promise to get me some help. And of course, Detective Bell says, oh yeah, sure, we'll do that. And he says, look, yeah, I killed him and I'll, I put the body in the creek uh, up the canyon. And uh, I also killed these other kids. I'll show you where I put the bodies of the first two and the others. I just want some help. Well, he showed them where the bodies were. And, of course, they locked him up. He went to... Went to... I got... Uh, uh, Nessa Sales is a, a good good attorney. And she was his attorney. And But then he gets convicted and sent out to prison, and that's where I come into picture. We're going to use this as an opportunity, uh, Dr. Al, to stop for a second and talk about ZipRecruiter. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. Now, Doctor, let's talk about Wesley Allen Dodd and yeah. Before we get into that, because we, I don't think we can go as far into the story as we did with Gary Arthur, Arthur Gary Bishop, but let's yeah. talk about some of the things, the similarities in the Wesley Allen Dodd case. When you talk about the early life of Wesley Allen Dodd, it was different. So let's start right there with Wesley Allen Dodd and his early upbringing and what was different. Okay. Um. One of the major things that seemed to have happened to Wes, he was the first child. He was a couple of years older, and a brother was born. 
a year or two after that, a sister was born. And the attention was put on the brother. And after Wes came to prison, his father visited him and said, Wes, when your brother was born, you just crawled into a corner and didn't come out. And Wes said he had all the toys he wanted. Uh, everything was great and doing a lot of things with cousins, but he never felt like he really belonged in the family. And he didn't start out, the art started out with the sexual attraction of boys. Wes didn't. He would get on his bicycle when he was a early teen to get on his bicycle and go for long rides. And he came to this settling pond. And so he went step by step. He thought, this is great. And then he'd go out there, spend a lot of time, go out there and he'd take off his clothes and sit there naked. Then he would walk a certain, uh, from this to that to that naked and then he'd get on his bike and ride naked, and he'd build him a little raft, and he got on that and be out there naked. And he thought, this is wonderful. This is exciting. If someone came over the hill uh, in the car as such, I could just go right into this water, and I'd be fine. But he started being attracted to boys and girls. You know, he didn't care. He wanted his sister and some others to show themselves naked and he would do the same and such and uh, then he laid naked in the bed and dad says Wes you got to put your clothes on and Wes says but dad you go to sleep naked why can't I and and then dad said oh, damn it do it anyway and Wes would then would cuss dad would say oh for hell's sake God's sake stop cussing he says you're cussing and Wes would be angry because Dad can do it, but I can't. Anyway, so he started developing an interest in that. And the big turning point, well, first of all, as a as an early teen in his uh, junior high, uh, he was small for his age. He was young. He And when they would go in the shower, there's guys that make fun of him, and one guy says, Guy, I'll give you some of mine. And everybody laughed, and Wes didn't know what he was talking about. You know, uh, a girl said, Hey, Wes, your epidermis is showing. And so he looked down to see if he's unzipped, and she laughed and laughed and laughed. And so, you know, he he was just humiliated. So kids then, boys, young or, young or girls, were something he really wanted. So one day, he was standing up in his parents' bedroom, corner room, looking out the window. The street in front of him had kids coming from elementary school. And so one day when kids were coming down, he made sure there was no adults on the road. There were no cars on the road. There was just a few kids. And he pulled down his pants and he exhibited himself out the curtain. And kids laughed. And one kid says, do it again. And he did it again. And someone actually went and got another kid to come back. And so this was a big turning point because he found the kids really liked it. And after 
about six weeks, and he'd been exposed himself again and again and again. After about six weeks, a cop came to the door. Didn't come in. The cop says, you know, a report has been that someone here has exposed himself out of a window, and Wes is upstairs. He's 13 years old. He's upstairs listening to this, and the cop says, well, there's um, no charges. Just can you kind of watch it, and, and if it's going on, tell him to stop, and, and he leaves. And Wes is up there thought, this is one smart 13-year-old. The kids like it. The parents don't care. The police don't care. And so he decided he's going to keep doing it. Talk about one incident around the same time in seventh grade. One topic seemed to really fascinate him. And he saw a film one day. Tell us about his experience looking at something regarding the Nazis. Yeah. He was fascinated by it. He's fascinated by the dead bodies he saw. He was also fascinated by National Geographic, where he could see naked kids uh, in some of the pictures. But he became interested in death and the sex. And so he would go to the library and check out everything he could relative to the concentration camps and the death things and uh, would look at any films he could find. And then around this time, there was a time that he, he and a friend of his in the house were watching uh, cartoons, I remember, and somehow... Uh, it got switched, and there was a naked woman there laying there. And then it was switched off again. It's just an accidental thing. And the dad came home and said, did you see that? He says, yeah. Wes says, well, I thought it was a guy because the breasts were pretty flat. And the dad laughed and laughed and laughed, and Wes felt very, very humiliated because, you know, and the dad says, well, you really don't know anything about sex, then, do you? So... But he found the kids, that was his his release, his, his enjoyment in life. Now you talk about, too, another traumatic event, according to him. At 15 years of, old, 15 years of age, his birthday is July 3rd, and it's in 1976. He finds out about Dad in the hospital. Tell us a little bit about this. Sort of, he puts yeah. it all, that it's very important, and it happened around the same time. Yeah, uh, he's about 15 years old, as I remember, and dad and mom are going to get a divorce. And they they tell him, and, and he's really angry about it because his his birthday, and, and dad uh, attempts suicide, is in the hospital. And he's angry, and he says, well, they really screwed up my birthday, and dad couldn't even kill himself right. And so... Yeah, he has a lot of bitterness. In fact, he he just he seemed to have been a a guy who never really did have any compassion. You know, if there was ever a person who fit the true meaning of psychopath from a child on, that's Wes Dodd. And that was the difference between Wes and Art, because Art kept feeling guilty. And he would put it out of his mind and go on doing it. But Wes 
never felt guilty, but he kept getting caught. He would spend some time in jail. And so he decided then the only way he is going to be able to keep doing it is to kill a kid. And so he's working at a construction site and the little kid is there and he's going to take this kid off and kill him, but some workers come and see him and Wes takes off and pick him up and question him. But a very fascinating thing in all of this is Wes has this big collection of pornography and he's only interested in kids and he's living with a friend who has a girlfriend there and the mother, or he's living with the mother and the uh, daughter comes. And so Wes is with this daughter, Colleen, and she comes and is there long as she says, Wes, do you mind if I lay on a sleep bag in your room? And he says, yeah, sure. And she comes and climbs in bed with him and this is his first experience with sex. And she's kind to him. Next day when he goes to work, she walks him out the car and she kisses him. And and to him, it's absolutely wonderful because they get talking about having a relationship. And he says, he says, wow, now I can be a family man. And so he actually gets rid of his pornography. But then she disappears. And she's gone for about a year. And then she comes back. And she has a little boy. And uh, she tells him, in the process of all of this, a little bit more, but she tells him that this is his child. And he is ecstatic. He thinks, wow, I now can be a father and I can have a child and I can have a wife and we can have a family and all of this. And that's when she says, uh, this is wonderful. We're going to do this, but we need to move down to Yakima because I've got friends down there. And the girl's mother was with them. So one night they just, Wes quits his job and they go down the Yakima and stay in a motel and the funds run out, his funds, after about a week. And at that point, then, the girl and the mother go out one night. Wes stays back, takes care of the kids. And they're all dressed up. And he figures, well, maybe they're prostitutes or something, but that's okay because we need the money. The next morning, the girl's boyfriend, prior boyfriend comes and says, I'm taking the kids. You'll never see your son again. And he is devastated. So the kids are gone. Colleen's gone. And Wes calls his dad and says, Dad, I want to come home. And his dad says, okay, come on. And so he has enough money to buy. Well, he, he sells some tools and uh, buys enough gas to get home. And his mother, his father and stepmother now are going to go on vacation for a week. 
and process, you know, he's tried Satanism before and it didn't do anything. And so at this time, he's thinking of it again. And so he says, Satan, if I kill kids and I dedicate their souls to you, would you give me some kids to kill? And in the process of all this, before he gets up to his parents, he picks up this hitchhiker, and this hitchhiker starts talking about child pornography and such. And he's thinking, wow, this must be a sign from the devil that he's going to let me do this. And so he decides, okay, he, he writes out about a, a multi-page contract to Satan and signs it, signs it in his blood. And then he starts planning on killing kids. And in uh, Labor Day 1989 is when he goes to, well, he goes to the park a few days before and he scouts it out and he makes maps of it. But his objective is just to see if he can kill a kid. Because he's thinking if he can, then he'll have sex slaves. He'll kidnap kids. And uh, he can't find the ones he wants because they're with someone with their parents, with too many kids, they're too old. And then these two boys come, and the near boys, and he... So he used this technique, hey, kids, come with me. Generally, it's one of, let me show you some baby birds, but I can only take you one at a time because it might scare them. But this time he says, okay, kids, come with me. I want you to do something. So he goes up this other path. He gets them off the side. He kills the kids, and it bothers him because he, he blacks out and he can't remember some of the things he did. And so... But then within uh, within a month, he uh, kidnaps a boy. Now, Wes, like Art, had a couple of kids he fell in love with. And Wes has a kid he fell, a couple of kids he fell in love with. And so he's extremely lonely. And he kidnaps the boy, and he takes him to his place. He molests the boy. And then they go to a store and buy some things. And they go to McDonald's and buy some food. And the boy is playing on the playground equipment. And Wes is talking to the kid's father and feeling very much like a father and takes the boy back to the apartment. And when it's coming morning, he knows he can't just leave the kid because his landlady might come. So he decides he's going to kill a kid, and he does. And uh, and comes back the afternoon, and he, he takes care of the body. But then within a month, he tries to kidnap another kid out of the show house, and the kid gets away, and then within about a week, he tries it in another show house, and the kid gets away, and... So he's, he get, climbs in his vehicle. He's driving off. He gets out several blocks. And the vehicle breaks down. I don't know if it's a truck or a car, but it breaks down on the side of the road. Please come along. They know him from prior arrests. 
and problems with kids. And so, and they have a description. And so they're interrogating him regarding trying to kidnap these kids. And after a couple hours, you know, his story is, one of the cops said to him, one of the detectives, Wes, what would you do if you were us? And he said, I'd go search my apartment. And then it's, whoops, because he's got the details in his diary journal of having killed the two boys, having killed all three. He's got pictures of this last one and uh, his body and such. And so Wes thinks, okay, I've done it now. And he confesses. And then he ends up in prison on death row. And he wanted to die young. When I saw him on TV in an interview and wrote to him and says, would you be willing to tell me your story? He says, yeah. And he wrote me out from that point, which is about September 88. He wrote me out about 200 pages of his biography, his life describing every detail of everything and sent it to me. And he said at one time, he says, the the court has approved my early execution, so I don't have long to do this. So we're going to have to hurry so we can get it done because I want, I, I, I want people to understand and to help it so that other kids won't be kidnapped or killed, you know. And uh, so I saw him up until December, um, what, 91? Yeah, okay. I was wrong on the first date, about December. And uh, in a couple weeks after that, about three weeks, he was killed, and he was killed by hanging. And he, when I said, but lethal injection is a better, more humane way to die. And he says, I don't want to. I want to die by hanging because this last boy, in order for my landlady not to see him, I put straps around him and hung him up on hooks in the, the closet. And he says, I don't deserve to die any better than how he did. And so he was hung. You write about, and you include, a. he wrote a pamphlet in prison, When You Meet a Stranger or Other Bad People. Just briefly, what's the gist of that, and what was his purpose in that with this? Well, I think I think there's a couple purposes. Uh, what he said he was doing, he says, I want people to understand. And in essence, what he's saying there is hey, if a stranger approaches you, run. Don't talk to him. If someone tries to do something, touch you wrong, tell your parents, tell the police, tell someone. And so on one hand, he's saying, I want to write this, and even sketches out some pictures in it. I want to write this so that it can help protect kids. And I remember one time, when we were talking about the hereafter when I was interviewing him. 
he is talking about God, and he just got tears in his eyes. You know, and someone reported after that that fast he believed in God and he asked for forgiveness. So, you know, we do get that guilt at the end or maybe just the fear. But I think, so one thing is, I want to protect kids, is what you're saying. But the other thing, he seems to be saying, if he writes this and gets it out, people won't think he's such a bad guy. They'll think there's something good about him. Sure. So there's something genuine and something phony about it. What's interesting, too, is that in both these cases, what he's saying what Dodd says is that you should do this and you should this, victims should do this, run away, somebody tries to touch you. Because if anyone would have heeded that, in both of these killers' cases, that would have helped them immensely. The, the people of the time, and people still do, suffer from naivety and a real innocent time or a less innocent time. Absolutely. If when West Dodd exhibited himself from the second story window if the first time some of the kids had to run off and got the police got their parents and had come back and if the police had have questioned Wes they had to take him down the station and says okay what's happening you were you're the only one who could have done this because you're the only one who was home time and so forth and so forth. You know, because Wes kept getting away with stuff. Yeah. There was a time he's on probation and he's in therapy and he can't be with kids. He can't have kids in the home. And yet he's got this child in the home that he's molesting. And when the probation officer comes to check on him unexpected, it just happens that the mother of the child took the boy either that day before or that morning and took him. So when probation officer came, there's no kid in the house, you know, but he just kept getting away. And one of the big things, Wes, and you see this with, with sex offenders, often, especially child molesters. person when they confess may confess, okay, I did this and this and this and this, and I want help. But what Wes gloated about, and I didn't tell him about the other kids I molested, you know? And he seemed so sincere, so cooperative, that the judge and everyone else thought, okay, this really is is a good kid. He's a good kid who just has a sexual problem and we can get him some therapy and that will help. And then we haven't damaged his life and we've kept society safe. But in reality, if they come away from the interview thinking the person speaking asking me about this only has half the information. Wow, look how wonderful that I got away with the other half. I got to say, Dr. Carlisle, too, that the difference, I think, I know some somewhat of Wesley Allen Dodd. I've read a book and some of the things that he's said. 
but I didn't know anything about uh, Arthur Gary Bishop. But I would say in comparing both of them, maybe you can give me a take on this. You say that the idea that somebody would want to be executed is rare. Somebody would want to find out why they did something. And, and you say that in the one case with Bishop, that these people were guards, experienced guards, thought, man, we've never seen anybody this remorseful, this remorseful. Yeah. Between the difference between Bishop and Dodd, what I thought was interesting, too, is when he talks about, when when Dodd talks about um, pact with Satan, um, pardon me, there seems to be a, a much different sort of mindset in the end. There seem, like you say, there seems to be some uh, ulterior motive for him to show remorse rather than Bishop seems to be, again, not giving him too much credit at all, there seems to be much more genuine remorse. Is there? Did you note a difference between these two people inherently in that regard? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think with both of them, one of the reasons for wanting to be executed early rather than putting in appeals over and over and over again for 10, 12 years before they finally get executed is their life is the kids. That's all they've got. So when they get in prison, they don't have kids anymore. And so they're lonely, they're depressed, they're hated by everyone. They're, if they're not on death row, they're on protection. And to them, it's like, okay, why keep living when the very thing that is my entire life is gone? But with Bishop, I think he felt more guilt. And when he was in prison, he would put earphones on and listen to whatever he could share. And there's a, a religious station, and he listened to that. And he asked me for some religious music, and I gave him some of that. And the night he was executed, he had the Bible and the scriptures right there. And as we talked in the evening, knowing that in a, an hour or so he's going to be executed, he's going to die, he wanted to talk about his mission. And he wanted to talk about God. And he knew that he was not going to be forgiven of that totally. He just know. He says, I can't get what I could have got in the hereafter because of what I've done. And he says, the thing that bothers me most is having to face those kids in the hereafter. Whereas with West Dodd, uh, he had a lady and she had a son who established a relationship and would come out and see him. And I think he was in prison a couple of years before he got executed. But, you know, uh, and the boy liked West so much, he wrote a letter to the president of the United States that, please don't kill my father. You know, stepfather, please. Uh, I need yeah. him. You know, but I don't think that God ever felt that guilty about what he did. He never talked about Satan again. To me, it was just a, a, a thing that came up and it's like, I'm so desperate to have kids. 
I'll do anything, and if Satan is a possibility, I'll try that. Even though it's the second time he tried it, it seemed to work this time. But it's not like he worshipped Satan after that. He didn't know anything about Satan or about any of that. You do talk, I was just going to ask you something very, very interesting. I wanted to ask you about this because this is disturbing and incredible. You talk about that he prayed, not expecting to have any guidance or help from Satan, but he figured he might as well. And he figured if he was going to pray, he might as well pray on the holy day, on the Christian holy day, which would be a Sunday. And he prayed to be able to kill three children. How many children did he kill? Okay. The way that came up, he was playing a game. And in this game, and it seemed like it's solitaire, but he's playing it and he says, Satan, I want you to tell me how many kids you'll give me. That's when he came up with the three. And then on the holy day, that's when he did the, the contract, he signed it, his blood and all of that. And he thought, this this is good because it's supposed to be God's day, and I'm worshiping Satan. No. So that's how he came up with the number three. And he did kill the three kids. And he said, as I was talking to him, he figured then that Satan had actually given him what he asked for. And he never seemed to believe that the, the souls of the kids went to Satan. He didn't really know anything about Satanism or about the ceremonies or any of that. It was just, gee, this is working. And uh, but very disturbing. Now, in comparison, in comparing both of these, and you've studied more than these serial killers, what do you think is a common theme? We talked about humiliation at a young age and that being traumatic. Tell us the similarities in some regards, and I use that example, where you saw similarities between these two very, very prolific and profound child killers. What's similar between them and also with Serial killers and a lot of people that very they're lonely when they're young. They don't fit in. They 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 start fantasizing. And there's a difference between fantasy and daydreaming. Fantasy is, is deeper. And when these guys get fantasized, you know, uh, Art Bishop when when the police searched his apartment. 400 pictures of naked kids and most of the pictures were just of the genitals. You know, and I said, Art, why? Why did you have to have 400 pictures? And a lot of it was just getting the kid to decide they'd be willing to have the picture taken. So a lot of it was just the interaction with the kid itself. But they're lonely. They start getting sexually turned on. And then they don't, they, it's a secret. They can hide it. They don't have to give it up. And they get into all of the masturbation with it. 
And then that starts really connecting them with this. And by the time they're 15, they're into it to such a point that it's going to be hard for them to get out of it. And so West Dodd and Archbishop both had that. With Archbishop, he wanted to change it. With West Dodd, he didn't. West Dodd was very happy with it. Go ahead. Sorry. How important was the fear once they realized they were arrested and that fear of imprisonment and further arrest, how important was that in their decision to kill? Well, with Wes going to jail multiple times, and uh, he would be given a longer sentence, but just to spend a very short time in there. Now, it's different now. It's quite different now. The laws have changed. But with Wes, that was why he killed, because he didn't want to stop molesting and in essence, he wanted a family. There's a family of kids who would worship him. With uh, Archbishop, he didn't want to kill kids. He had no desire to ever do that. And with Alonzo, when he had him in his place and he felt he had to kill a kid, otherwise Alonzo's going to go screaming to his mother, he'll be arrested, he'll go to prison. And after that, he couldn't find a good reason not to. He thought, I can only go to hell once, and to kill more kids is not going to matter. But then it gradually got to him, and he fell apart more and more and more until he literally set himself up at the end to get killed. But So with Archbishop, the first one was more of an accident than anything. And with Dodd, he planned it. In fact, he would try to desensitize to the thought of killing a kid to see if he could do it. Now, this uh, project, these, these interviews and this book, how long did it take you to put this together and, um, this is an incredible result, this research. Just tell us when this was done and how long this took you to put this Mind of the Devil together. Um, the actual writing didn't take long. Collecting the information didn't take long because the only reason I wrote it is because I had the information. And I hadn't seen another book in print that talked about the psychology, step by step, of how a person becomes a child killer. So I thought, I've got this information. I really don't want to write a book on it because who's going to read it? Who's going to read about someone who wants to kill kids? And so I just sat on it for the longest time. And after I got the first Ted Bundy book done... I thought, I've got this information. I might as well write it. And if any police departments or uh, universities uh, or anyone wants to understand, at least it's in print. And so it uh, probably took six months to a year at the most to actually 
write that. Well, I want to congratulate you on an incredible piece of work um, and a great read, a fantastic read, The Mind of a Devil, the case of Arthur Gary Bishop and Wesley Allen Dodd, Dr. Al Carlisle. I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Carlisle. Uh, do you have a Facebook page or do you do the have a website? Many yeah. People might want to look at other work. Yeah, they just go to al.carlisle um, on Facebook and they'll pull me up or Violent Mind and it'll pull me up. Yeah, and anyone who wants to contact me and ask me any questions, um, I've got my email on there and they're free to call or write or whatever and I'll be happy to talk to anybody about this. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Carlisle. It's been a pleasure. Hope to talk to you again real soon. Have a great night. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Uh Good night.